0: Welcome to the Back Pages podcast. Today I'm with my esteemed colleague Barney Hoskins. Hello, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> that was and, really
1: scary. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. <laughs> wow.
2: That Hi, caught me Mark. totally
1: by surprise. <laughs> uh, I, well, I, I'm so thrown. Hello, everybody. Hello, Mark. Hello, Jazz. Bye-bye. Hi, <laughs> um, hey, Mark. It's Thursday morning, it's the co- as it it's always the... is in Hammersmith. Uh, and it's the Cocktail Lounge Trio. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's just us, I'm afraid, after last week's appearance by David Hepworth. It's just the three of us, but we will do our best to entertain you. We'll be talking, as ever, about all that's new on RBP, including the week's new audio interview, which is with... Radiohead's Johnny Greenwood. But first we're looking back at in excess. Why? <laughs> Give me a chance and I'll explain. Who's late frontman? Yeah. Michael Hutchins. Michael sexiest, sexiest man in, sexist, in the world. The sexiest man alive. Well, in fact he's dead, dead. Sexiest man dead now. <laughs> Celebrated in a right. new documentary called Mystify, which opens tomorrow. Why
0: are many people making documentaries like this about, frankly, mediocre third-rate 80s brockers.
1: Because there's still a demand for music docs, which will, I'm sure... They'll, it'll probably it reach, peter out, yeah. yeah it'll reach it'll sort of peak saturation. saturation, exactly. I don't know, but,
0: with the plethora of streaming services and the need to fill slots, I
1: think it's the opposite. I think they're going to churn out more and more. Right, so we need to start making documentaries because there's a lot of money there. Do it's a mine. Do one on the Hot House. 80s. There you go. Well, <laughs> that was <laughs> my... If someone came to you and said... We want to make a documentary about you, right? But you're not going to go, there's too many music. No, I'd,
0: s- I'd say, what, it'll be about ten minutes long? <laughs>
1: I'd pay to see it. I'd subscribe <laughs> yeah. to Netflix to watch it. So So, yeah, in the- so a new documentary yeah. about Michael Hutchence, obviously it's going to be about In Excess, the band he led as well. We have three pieces from that golden musical decade. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, no. The first is from that, the golden musical decade known as the 1980s. Bud Scopper and Cream, February 88. We have a piece by Max Bell from Vox, January 1992. And then we have... A very long obituary by Hutchins's fellow Australian Toby Croswell from Australian Rolling Stone, December 1997, when obviously Michael had just died. We're talking about In Excess, partly because I don't think any of us can quite understand how they became so massive, can we? And they really were massive. Yeah, yeah. They'd yeah. been going for quite a long time before they broke through they became one of the sort of giant bands Mm. of Mm. the late 80s. And, I mean, is that just because they made radio-friendly sort of Dance, pop, rock. There's
0: not much dance involved. I mean, they're, a rock, they're an out-and-out rock band with, as Jasper said yesterday, snare drums, which last about three weeks.
1: But on their most <laughs> famous album, their biggest selling album, Kick, there was this real nod to kind of Princey, yeah, so Princey-funk prince-y yeah. rhythm. prince kind of. Not funk, as you and I would understand. No, it, no. But nonetheless, there are <laughs> three or four clearly prince influence tracks yeah. on that but was it really just because he was to quote uh hmm, paula yates who we'll be talking <laughs> about later was it just because they made radio friendly dance yeah. hot rock, or is it because hutchins was to quote paula yates his great inamorata the sexiest man alive
0: i mean things they're utterly generic as a band, yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that's in excess, well, they were utterly generic. It all sounds quite good, it's very well produced, it's very well recorded in that 80s. I mean, 80s. it's very of its time, yeah, in the way you know, it sounds lexicon, digital reverb, solid state, logic desks, yeah. and yeah. huge snare drum sounds. Yes, I just it baffles me, but you know, everything baffles me these days.
1: It baffled me at the time, I have to say. Yeah. My first wife, uh, <laughs> loved the Kick album, and played it incessantly during a holiday in the Dordogne. And I just... I now realise, just because, like lots of women, she fancied him, I'm sure, because she's actually got very good musical taste, so I can't believe she really liked this. But it would play again and again and again, you know, Need You Tonight, New Sensation, Never Tear Us Apart. These, these, these songs would go around the swimming pool over and over again. i just... I would try to, like in excess, having never really paid attention to them before. Mm. And I just thought there's nothing, nothing, nothing original here. You know, there's nothing original about him. He's a sort of composite of, you know, Jagger, Jim Morrison, yeah. etc. And could the been... music, as you say, is just entirely put together from other influences. A band constructed almost
0: by committee. Yeah. I mean, the band themselves being the committee concerned... But clearly, there's a process of, like, what is going to work? And they basically analyse their own record. Sure, I mean, it's
3: hit manufacturing. Yeah. By a band rather than by a team of producers, but nevertheless hit manufacturing. I mean, let's face it, that's what's most business.
0: interesting about Michael Hutchence is his death, brutally. He committed suicide after a night of phone calls between himself and Paulie Yates, his then inamorata and mother of his daughter, mm-hmm. and with Bob Geldof, who has been incredibly difficult about allowing... Paula Cigar with her children, their children, Mm. to Australia to Mm. visit. And it's a horrible circumstance. His bloodstream was full of everything. I mean, he he had Booze, cocaine, Prozac, barbiturates, I think. I mean, he'd been yeah. pilling up and snorting yeah. all bloody night. Yeah. You know? uh, the fact that he had Prozac in his bloodstream implies that he already suffered from depression.
1: Yeah. No, it is a really sad story. Yeah. I mean, Jasper, you and I were re familiarizing ourselves yesterday with the notorious in bed interview that Paulie H. did. With my coil for breakfast breakfast, television, which was nine years after they first met, and they're practically having sex on television television. on live breakfast television. And grief. And I watched and thought, you know what? This is actually this is really sad because within six years, both these people will be dead. Yeah. And actually, it was quite poignant Mm -hmm. because watching this interview they didn't look it wasn't like he was Kurt Cobain and she was Janis Joplin let's be frank or Nancy Spongeon. they looked like two people who were going to who were going to be dead within 6 years and it's it's actually a really pitiful story because they did become these sort of notorious tabloid yeah. figures, didn't they? Yeah. Um, he's actually
3: quite likable. I mean, yeah. in, in both the interviews between the two yes. of them, he comes across as just a guy. You know, he's, mm. he's yes. quite sort of he is playing up that kind of sexy rock star sort of bashful.
1: Well, it's the little hair, boy thing, you know? isn't it? You can see why so many gorgeous women wanted to he mother him. Really, I think yeah. there's a lot of mothering going on. I know that sounds like a terrible cliche, but when you see him being interviewed, he's playing. The little Absolutely. boy, really. It's like, look off and let me just lay my but head in on your a, breast. quite
3: a genuine sort of way. He's, yeah. You know, he's, not, he's not horrible. He's not fake. He's not horrible. No, he's not, no. You know. he
1: just wasn't really an original talent. And no. that's why, despite this documentary, no one's going to be going to imagine they're seeing a film about someone like Kurt Cobain.
3: Sure, no. They might be thinking that. But Yeah,
1: I mean, what's interesting rereading these pieces is actually how much he talks about people like Nick Cave. You would think In Excess were the absolute mm. opposite of like the birthday mm-hmm. party and the bad seeds. But weirdly, Nick was actually, I think, He sung Godfather to to Tiger Lily. uh, And he also sung at his funeral. And he sung at they were quite close. And I always find that I mean, having known Nick, I would have thought him to be pretty. I would have thought he would be Fairly sort of scornful of yeah. in Excess at the time. Yeah. But they clearly.
0: Well, is that because of the sort of nature of the small world of Australian rock and roll, partly? You yeah. Know, I'm given how long NXS has been around. They yeah. were probably bumping into each other at gigs when
1: the pre birthday party was sort of yeah. flogging their way around the.
0: The, well, and the, the interest,
1: pubs. when they, exactly, when they first started, they were much closer mm-hmm. together stylistically than they, than they yep. became. I mean, the original Boys Next Door, which turns to the birthday party, were much more new wavy, yeah. as were In Excess. Yeah, they were yeah. still finding their personality. Yeah, yeah. The Bud Scopper piece opens, well, it's, it's just great. Hutchins is at the Sunset Marquee in West Hollywood. Scopper says he's draped casually across an easy chair in a suite at Sunset Marquee. A pretty girl sits on the floor beside him, her arms wrapped possessively around his dangling legs. <laughs> just, <laughs> and, at least it's just his dangling legs. But, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, at that point. And and at that the point. end of the interview he, he pats the girl on the head, apparently. Neither absently nor condescendingly claims Scopper, but it, it sounds rather like that to me. Scopper describes In Excess' sound quite well as a juxtaposition of clipped, funky-butt-chic, capital-C rhythms, and hot-wired punk urgency. And I think that's probably about right. It still doesn't mean that the songs, which were actually mainly written in terms of melodies and chords by Andrew Farris, yeah. who...
3: Was it three brothers that are in the band as well? Was Was
1: it it? three or was it two? It was Andrew and Tim. And and actually, Hutchins was a late arrival Mm -hmm. to the band. But nonetheless, it was a sextet that stayed together for a long time. Mm. I mean, right up to Michael's death. And they were absolutely huge. The the, the next piece, Max Bell, 1992, is sort of really... Because... Scopper's piece is just when Kick comes out. So at this point, no one had any idea how huge that album was Mm going to be. Whereas Max can look back four years later and really tell the story of how in excess became so huge. And he interviews Andrew Farris as well. And at this point, Hutchins is already talking about how difficult his life is, particularly with the English tabloid Mm -hmm. press. You know, he says he manages to scrape together a private life, but the English press are so nosy and the English seem to love that eavesdropping. I mean, there's no doubt that that paparazzi attention to his life with Kylie Minogue and also with Paulie Yates was part of what I think... Led to his demise. Well,
0: well, that's reasonable to say. But a few weeks back, we're talking about Madonna, who talking about yeah. the tabloid press had yeah. far more attention paid to by the tabloid press than Michael Hutchence ever did, and she knew how to deal, which is
3: not read it, not let it get into her head. You yeah. know. Yeah, Clearly, Hutchins couldn't do but that. But I think, I mean, there's also the level of, you know, you can be harassed by the tabloid press physically in person, and that can be difficult to get away from.
0: Yeah, but, well, no, I mean, I think McDonald managed to do that. Sure. She, you, you, you know, I, I, think, I think you can. And Abyss Me is slightly kind of uneasy about someone like Hutchins doing that because he also played the game himself. Mm-hmm. You know, that, 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 that clearly at one point in his life, it was of some value to him. Play the tabloid press's yeah. game, and then suddenly it becomes uncomfortable. Well, you know, you've got to make that choice yourself. My sympathy is a bit. Sure, limited. but I
3: mean, I don't think the tabloid press's behaviour is justified. No, I'm not. That so, that I'm,
0: not, that I'm that not, that's not, that's not in any way justifying the tabloid press's mm-hmm. press, uh, behaviour. But what I am saying is, there are ways of coping with that, and one of the ways of coping with that is not play the tabloid press's game.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: and he and Paula absolutely did. Yeah, there's no doubt about it.
1: Am I going to rush out to see? the Hutchins documentary. No, I'm not. I mean, he he just doesn't interest me. No. Because I just don't think there was anything really authentic there. But I still think it's, it's obviously a very sad story. Yeah. It's worth reading these pieces because they are about how, how you manufacture the sort of, Massive success of a of a group like that, um, and you have shown the progression in a nice way of what yeah you know, yeah exactly exactly story. featured writer on the home page this week is Tim Riley who's been an RBP contributor for quite a long time and it, and in fact he teaches at Emerson College in Does Boston and they have been a subscriber for a long time. Well, that's excellent. We like this. He has a what's described as an online portal called the Riley Rock Index, which is something that sort of complements Rock's Back Pages. Really. Mm-hmm. It's a very useful resource, and he's written a number of books. His first book was about the Beatles, Tell Me Why. And I've just selected three pieces that really do demonstrate what a, what a, um, what a broad perceptive of- critic he is. And, yeah, I mean, he's a, good, he's a really good writer and broad range he's written you know he's written for everybody but mainly in that era like the 80s 90s he wrote for the Boston Phoenix and the first piece is about Roots Rock actually it's an attempt to explain why Roots Rock is a sort of reaction Mm -hmm. to the more synthetic yep. manufactured pop of the 80s, mm-hmm. well, to the likes of mm-hmm. In Excess, you could <laughs> say. Uh, it's actually quite an interesting piece about uh, Dylan Springsteen, but also the bands that were influenced by the likes of Credence
2: Yeah. Clear yeah. the
1: Revival. So he talks about the cowpunk bands. And he also talks about the new traditionalists and country. It's a sort of overview mm-hmm. of, of what I suppose led eventually to Americana. Yeah. There's a good sentence here. Roots rock, far from telling us things we already knew, allowed a lot of newer fans sometimes to catch up on their history as rock contemplated middle age. So it's a bit about how rock has. Reached middle age. Yep. The next piece is very different. It's from the same year. It's about Two Live Crew. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sort of essentially about their second album, As Nasty as They Want to Be. And of course, they were as nasty as they wanted to be. And
3: interestingly, he's sort of defending their right to party. To be nasty. To be nasty.
1: Yeah, because this album led to them being arrested after a fundamentalist pro family group called Focus on the Family alerted the relevant authorities to the that there were 87, on this one album, 87 descriptions of oral sex, 116 (laughs) (laughs) mentions of male and female genitalia, and lyrical passages referring to male ejaculation. He concludes that these rappers are aesthetically inferior is beside the point that locker room antics can lead to the country's freedoms being held hostage is what should be worrying people. Well, there's a whole cluster of issues here, aren't there, Mark? Yeah, yeah. What do you remember about Two Live Crew from Miami?
0: (laughs) Did I love Two Live Crew? Not particularly. Did I find them kind of juvenile, frankly? There was a moral panic around hip-hop at that yep. time, and they were the easy target. Yep. But the same panic applied to bands who were totally different, like Public Enemy and so on and so forth. The images you have of southern preachers breaking records in the 50s and saying rock mm-hmm. and roll has got to go, you just fast-forward yes. to the late 80s and the early mid-90s, and you got precisely the same thing from the same people... Also around that time, Tipper Gore's organisation was, was cool. flying high. Yeah, uh, that uh, was just a little bit earlier, wasn't it? Yeah, but, it? but, yeah, but it, it's in, all in the
1: same ab- era.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And how black music has always been the target of white censoriousness, mm. regardless of what you actually think of the music itself. Yeah. And the thing is, is that those people tended to be very broad-brush, the censors, the censorious, used to pick on anyone... Two Life Crew were a particularly easy target because of how many mentions there's a sexism. sex in this yeah. particular... Well,
1: they uh, almost... They were provoking this reaction.
0: Th- and they were, was... ca- they were cartoon-like. Yeah. You, yes, they you, were. You know. I mean, do you defend the inherent misogyny, grotesque sexism of some hip-hop records mm. of that period? Mm. And you have to say some and some of the language used. Yeah. know, you don't. No. I mean, you can have an argument about it, you can have a conversation about it, but that's not the same thing as approving of it, but it's also not the same thing as censoring it. Yeah. It was extraordinary. They were the most high profile victims of these things but a lot of things, a lot of shows were stopped particularly in the south, yeah. there were a number of arrests of hip hop artists by local sheriffs. Yeah, or, you know. well,
1: that, that was the case here in well, all Broward of, County. That's right, mm. all of that sort of and thing. I think the
3: racial element that you point out absolutely. is a really important oh, yeah. one in this. Absolutely. It's like oh, yeah. it's not, you know, there's plenty of misogyny and uh, yes, yeah. other things in other forms of music that is being oh. made by white people that doesn't get that same attention just because of that. Mm.
0: I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, was it more averse than hip hop? Sure. Yes, it, yeah, it, absolutely, it was. And you, you can't deny that. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, in a way, the value of 2 Live Crew is that, that a lot of other hip-hop artists looked at 2 Live Crew and thought, we don't want to be them. Yeah. Mm. And I'm not sure of the chronology, but you get a whole bunch of people right through to the Fugees and people like that actually op- operated from an entirely different social, sexual, political standpoint. In some ways, you needed the two-life crew. For sort of conscious rap. For conscious
3: rap to emerge. To develop, yeah. yeah. I think the, the use of the phrase locker room talk has a kind of defence mm, yeah. that I find it's questionable. Problematic. It's, it's well, problematic. I,
0: yeah. I think of Trump. Exactly. I mean, exactly. And, it's, and it's like, you know,
3: just locker room talk, it's not a good no, excuse. No, no. Never and, has and the irony
0: is we have the two-life president now. I mean, yeah. that, 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 that's, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's Trump who, coining a great you phrase, know, grabs people by the pussy, etc., etc. You know, so it's extraordinary that. What can be normalised in White America? Just to be
1: clear, that that is a quote from the president himself. I think everyone knows that. You know, I hope so.
0: That a man can be elected president of the United States he uses yeah. language which is not yeah. that different no. from two
1: live crews. It, it's a brilliant irony. I yeah. quite agree. <laughs> yeah. two live crew for president.
2: That's what I'm <laughs>
1: The last piece, quickly, is a long piece that Tim Riley wrote for us, in fact, um, 2006, a long time ago, called Learning the Game, How John Lennon Learned to Stop Worrying and Love His Inner Geek. And it's actually a piece that's sort of half about Buddy Holly and then um, half about um, Holly's influence on mm-hmm, Lennon, mm-hmm. And actually, it's a really, really good piece. He writes really well about Buddy Holly and his thick horn rimmed glasses mm-hmm. and what a geek he was, you know. And I think that's it's something many of us who love, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, yeah, absolutely. and Ad Elvis, et cetera, there's always that quite strange feeling when you see yeah, Buddy Holly. Yeah. He does look like the sort of geek. He doesn't look like He's the opposite of Elvis. Yes. Even though he was profoundly influenced by yeah, Elvis, absolutely. and like Elvis, profoundly influenced by R&B. Yeah, yeah. There's a nice sentence here. Holly personified Rock's transformative power and his influence reached far beyond his hiccups, mm-hmm. songwriting, virile guitar work, mm-hmm. stiff but arresting stage presence and deceptively simple recordings. His guileless smile contains multitudes.
0: Um, I think there are two people who represent more or less the same thing. That's Buddy Holly and Sam Cooke. The reason why I say that is that... Well, Sam Cooke was sexy. Yeah, no, but, yes, absolutely. But when you hear the early recordings, they are very direct, very soulful in their different ways, and yet they both allow themselves to be saccharined by producers. That Buddy Holly's late recordings, Sam Cooke's late recordings, are the shallowest and thinnest of pop. And there's a great sadness there that, that they were unable to be who they were really wanted to be yeah. in order to maintain their careers as, as, as pop musicians. They were pop musicians. Yes. They were both selling huge numbers of records mm. to a very, very broad mm. public. Yes. Because Buddy Holly's early stuff is just fantastic.
1: They were almost like the Buddy Holly and the Crickets were almost like the prototype rock band. Yeah, they were. Uh, they they uh, were um, like a four-piece rock band with a Fender Stratica. Yeah. The importance of Holly's Fender Stratica absolutely. cannot be uh, overstated. No,
0: uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, and you're, you're absolutely right. They were the first... Pretty much identifiable bands in that respect. I mean, you could say Gene Vincent's band, well, the, you know, the Blue the Caps. The Blue, Blue Caps yeah. were not dissimilar. We forget now, pre-Beatles, that bands as such really didn't exist in mm. the way that the Beatles sort of made them. Mm. And of course, the Beatles are as. This Piece alludes to mm. hugely influenced yes, by yes. Buddy Holly and by the makeup of the crickets.
1: Absolutely. And then he goes on to write about Lennon being influenced by Buddy Holly. And it's, it's, I think it's rather good. I'll just read this short paragraph. At age 16, throughout most of 1957, John Lennon worshipped Holly as only a teenager could. Mm-hmm. At first, this attraction seems awkward. Lennon was a neighborhood bully, a tough talking Ted who ruled by intimidation and cruelty but he devoured Buddy Holly records and he studied them the way geeks take apart clocks yeah, yeah. just to see how they well, work. I, so this is really interesting. No, no,
0: I think that's absolutely right. I think it's the feature of the early Beatles, the Beatles plural, is that they did that That collectively, certainly that Harrison, McCartney and Lennon did that. They did it to the Everly Brothers in terms of harmony singing. Harrison did it. To Carl Perkins Carl, yeah. and people like that sure. as, as a guitar player. I mean, everyone does that. Yeah. patchwork of uh, yes. You know, you hoover influences. the stuff up. Uh, uh, you hoover up full spectrum productions. You hoover up all this sort of information and put it up. That's what all bands do. But in a way, they were the first to do it as a self-contained unit, yeah. where they were fishing the stuff up. For themselves, exactly. rather than having a producer impose... Exactly,
1: exactly. So that's Tim Roy. Yeah.
0: Also, the other things he wrote for the Boston Phoenix, very briefly, it's gone now. There was a golden yep. age of regional, city-based... Alternative papers, whether they were nakedly underground press like the Great Speckled Bird in Atlanta, or whether it's the Boston Phoenix, which is close to like a Village Voice for Boston, all based on the Village Voice. Well, a lot of them based on the Village Voice, and it produces an enormous richness of writing. You know, it's gone for a variety of reasons. One is that the culture's moved on; the need for alternative mouthpieces Mm -hmm. is gone. Essentially, the internet. I mean, I think the Phoenix closed about. Two years yeah, ago. not that long ago, but yeah.
1: it closed like so many others. But other it's also closing. become a
0: very different paper by that time. Yeah. But it, it was one of, I think, one of the wonderful things that came out of alternative culture, and verse of commas, yeah. was this new
1: press. Yeah. And a number of our writers... Contributed to the Boston Phoenix, so yep. it's lamented. Yeah. So, Mark, we're now going to turn our attention to everything that's new for subscribers to Rocks Back Pages. So, why don't you tell us about the week's audio interview? Yeah, this
0: is really interesting. This is Johnny Greenwood, who is the lead guitarist for Radiohead. But A.VE. That, that is a description underplays his role in in that band. Indeed. But it's not about Radiohead at all. This is about him as a soundtrack composer specifically for the very first movie that he composed the soundtrack for body song and it's particularly interesting, if you are a musician if you're interested in the process in which music is made even more specifically if you're interested in the process by which someone writes music to picture this is really really good stuff It's fascinating um too. he's interviewed by andy gill who's, who's who died very recently. The He's... late
1: Andy Gill, who, who? I mean, it is worth mentioning and very touchingly, from our point of view, requested that all his interview tapes be handed over to Rock's Back Pages. So this is the first of Andy's yeah. audio interviews. There are there are going to be many more with an extraordinary range of interview subjects that reflect his very, very eclectic taste. Yeah, yeah. So we're looking forward to, to, to more, more very, of Andy. Very Rudy. much.
0: In this one, John is talking about the process of recording using tape the thing was recorded on tape mm. at a time when andy certainly assumed it had all been done on the computer and john is very interesting about the difference of working with tape and about how it demands different things of you and different approaches uh we'll listen to the first clip now this is when he's talking he started off as a viola player he even went was at university for about yep. three weeks before the band was signed to emi and his tutors it appears rather gratefully waved him off the premises. <laughs> he doesn't mention which university. I think it he was Oxford Polytechnic. But so he was a viola player, and he's very interesting about that in, in this clip. <sighs>
2: Do you have a background in, in classical music though, or um, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, well, I started on the viola and was, was kind of um, was, was headed for university when we signed. Um, um, so yeah, I suppose there was a kind of there was there was another me, sort of slightly harder working me, who was who was headed for you know. For, for minor orchestras at the back of the viola section I think <laughs> yeah. third viola in the, yeah. in the LSO or something yeah or exactly yeah. Yeah. viola which is already the kind of anyway it's kind of non-instrument of the group the, well the this is it it's in it's, it's,
1: the little it's the saddest of the string I think yeah, well, it's, yeah it's sort of it's not quite as
2: as sombre as the cello and, and no. it's not as you know Oh, it's, it's in that kind of strange middle ground. I got really bitter and gave gave all the all the interesting stuff in this, you know. Yeah. So sort of, <laughs> I remember kind of scraping along with the with the simpler parts. But yeah, that's no, it's beautiful it's
0: I love the bit when he says he basically gave the viola all the best bits in, yeah, in the soundtrack. Yeah, great. Um,
3: great. I think a, a sentiment shared by many viola
0: players yeah. <laughs> the frustration the, that the actually, parts... Of...
2: The,
3: the, 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 the actually a rather fabulous instrument. Yeah, um, yes, actually. It is, I know
0: yeah. a couple of people use it for improvised music in the area I'm particularly interested in at the moment. And because it's got that bit more range downwards...
3: And it has bar, a sonority, yeah, b- yeah. because of the size of the instrument compared to the violin, yeah. ne- while still being at a higher pitch, then it, has, it does have a richness. Uh, 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 it's got a place. It's got a place as a kind of lead voice in music which hasn't really been allowed to- and one of the problems with that is that it's Again, because of the way it's constructed, it's quieter than a violin. It struggles to break through because it's not as high-pitched. It struggles to break through. And I think even in one Mozart viola concerto or something, he wrote the part in the wrong key and had the viola player tune the viola up so that it would be brighter-sounding, so that it would cut through more. So so that's kind of an interesting...
1: This ties in, actually, neatly with the reason we're adding this audio from 2003 is because, as some listeners will have read, Johnny has just launched his... Classical label octatonic records. So, Mark, what else does he talk about? Well,
0: well, I mean, he used some jazz players that the the guy engineering it put him together with Arguelles as one of them, Gerald Presence as one of them. Gerald Presence is the main one. Um, um, What was interesting is he kind of wrote these sketches to give them to then work on and, and arrange and put together. And he ended up putting both his sketch of one of the pieces yeah. and the finished result yeah. on, on, on the resulting yeah. album because right. they're quite different. They are. Um, they are. And he also talks about how it's very odd leading a session when before being a member of the band, as you did everything in consultation with Radiohead, you do a string arrangement and he'll do, let's say, three versions and the band will say no to one and maybe for one. And, mm. and now he's got to make these decisions himself. He uses a variety of obscure instrumentation on this record, including the vocoder, but most notably the Andre Martineau.
1: We've rehearsing. Um, we've all been rehearsing. We've all right. been rehearsing the that, that which
0: is a very early electronic instrument. So let's listen to him talking about that. Brilliant! It's a keyboard,
1: oh, it's a keyboard
2: and a string, and um. With a, with a ribbon and a button that's very expressive as well, and so you can do very accurate sort of. I mean, so at the beginning, of the first track all is all two martinezes with, with all the trills playing all the. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, the, the,
1: the string is
3: is that like a kind of a potential type thing? Is that...
2: Yeah, it's controlling I mean. just, just pitch, and, and the button is I means you can get every variation of attack. Anyway, it's, it's the button that's, that's, that's the clever part, or as clever, because you can obviously do just gently. Oh. It's, it's very, it's very lyrical when it's played well. When you hear someone who can really play it, just like someone singing, just, yeah. the, it's the main you know the, the beginning of um, Star Trek theme. The sounds like a woman singing is actually a montone, oh, and really? it just sounds like someone singing. So, yeah. because it's being played so well, ah. so it's like it's a great song, it's very yeah. like.
0: lot of Andy Gill there and yes. singing that opening line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They have a, actually a very interesting conversation about early electronic instruments.
3: And so. The, the On Martineau is actually a fascinating instrument. It's sort of like the controllable, more controllable theremin in a lot of ways, yes. right? in the way that it sounds. Right. Yeah. And originally it was vacuum tubes, oscillations in yeah. vacuum tubes, later on in transistors, yeah. like a synthesizer. Yeah. But then, yeah, you, can, you have this great degree of expressive control via the button that Johnny Greenwood refers yes. to and via this sort of sliding pitch. It's actually also later versions had a keyboard yeah. that you can play vibrato on, which is really interesting. By moving, By your, moving fingers. your fingers side to side, you play vibrato as you would on a string instrument.
0: Or on a modern synthesizer where you can do that, where some, some modern synthesizers allow very it. Few, very, very few.
3: Very few. I own one.
0: <laughs> 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 anyway, it's great stuff. We'll listen to a, another clip later where he talks about his colour blindness, which is something that actually. I stunned us all when none of us knew this. It's a very interesting clip. I enjoyed this interview. It's a really interesting conversation between two people who know their stuff to some extent, Johnny Greenwood, and who know their stuff to a great extent, Andy Gill. But Andy Gill's never patronising towards Johnny Greenwood. Why should he be? Of course. But he kind of, like, throws names at Johnny Greenwood who, which he hadn't heard. And you can yeah. hear him
1: mm. really listening to this stuff. Andy you know. was the perfect person to do this interview yeah. because he really does know about all kinds of arcane areas of music and they end up talking about Raymond Scott. Yes. Even absolutely. Preston Sturges That's... comes into the conversation. I, I, I love that. And, and, and clearly Johnny doesn't know who the film director Preston Sturges is but it's it, it's a great conversation. It is. It really is. Um, yeah. with, I, with,
0: with some really irritating dining women <laughs> and the table next door to them. But... <laughs> it's well worth
3: one... listening to and you said to me that I would enjoy it and I did enjoy it. I really yeah. found it very interesting on a number of different axes and mm-hmm. as I was listening to it interestingly enough I I thought that someone who would enjoy it as well, who we had on the podcast recently, would be David Stubbs. Absolutely. So, David, if you're listening, you will love this interview. Y- yeah. It's right up your street. And when I was looking, because we've got the resulting piece that Andy Gill wrote after the interview, we've mm-hmm. got that you know, as an yeah. article on Rock's like Pages, and I was looking for that... And I also found a review by David Stubbs of Body Song in the oh, Wire that we've got, which I think is really interesting. And, and he really likes the Body Song soundtrack. He says, Although Greenwood has essentially provided a patchwork quilt of established styles here, his ear for what connects, honed through working with a multi million selling group, pulls it beautifully together. Yeah. And so that, that I just thought was interesting. Uh, the other interesting point it's is, is that Paul Thomas Anderson, the film director, saw Body Song, yes. loved
0: it. And it was via that, he then he's used Johnny Greenwood for
3: at least two of his films. He's used soundtrack. for all his films since, pretty much. I mean, I yes. mean, there will be blood. Right. is the Johnny Greenwood soundtrack, and one of the early ones. Yeah. And I'm no and Radiohead fan because
0: I just Phantom can't get, pa- I can't get past. From York but i've always had a lot of time for Johnny Greenwood, and as a guitar player, I think musically he's been the most interesting that happened then but he is their secret
1: weapon he is I mean, I mean, in terms absolutely. of
0: arrangement in terms of all kinds of stuff beyond his actual play I think
1: it's it really is it's Johnny Greenwood that transforms Radiohead into what I regard as much more than just like a, a five rock piece band. rock band. yeah, yeah. And, absolutely. I mean not that that York wasn't like pushing for electronic sure. stuff as well, of course. But the thing about Greenwood is that you know, he was like the kid, he's younger than the rest mm-hmm. of them. He's Colin Greenwood's younger brother. And he a bit like Buddy Holly, bit of a geek. Yeah, you know, yeah, he yeah. was pulling computers apart when he was at school. And but he brings, I would say, sort of genuine kind of Touched musical ad- genius and, to- and, and,
3: and sort of the avant-garde I mean, a touch of the
0: avant-garde.
1: Yeah, and his heading. film
3: soundtracks are really. Yeah. Very, there will very be blood. I mean, I mean, that
1: was when I realised what. I mean, my God, he's got a, a yeah, career. and he's, here, and he's got so he's got
3: like, real talent also at pulling things together. I mean, using Arvo Peart's music in yeah, that yeah. soundtrack yes. and combining it with his own stuff yeah. Yeah. makes it very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I saw him perform at the Proms a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. near the end of the Proms this year, and that was interesting too because he pulled together a program of various compositions of his, including a a premiere of one of his compositions, but also compositions by Steve Reich and other composers. And he did that in such a way that it it really worked very Mm -hmm. well. I mean, I actually didn't love his composition, the one that was being premiered, as a standalone work. I Mm -hmm. think at present his composition is better suited to film soundtrack when it has a context. right? Right. Because just when it was just being performed, Mm. it it went on a bit basically and didn't have enough ideas to sustain it. But... The way he pulled the programme together was just brilliant. Okay. and He combined really disparate
1: mm. things in a way that yeah. suddenly
3: made a lot
0: of I, sense. I listened to this. I liked him,
3: actually.
1: Mm. You He's know. A re- yeah, I mean, he comes I I've only met him the really one time well. when I was doing a piece on Pavement and their uh, Terror Twilight um They were recording at Rack right. Studios. And Johnny came in to add a guitar part mm. to one of the tracks. And he was just... Just so sweet and yeah, yeah. pretty shy, yeah. not not in any way playing. I mean, this is this is post OK Computer, but he wasn't not playing the kind of big rock style anywhere at all. Mm-hmm. I don't think he ever has. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be remiss of us not to mention our Radiohead anthology, Present Tense, which is a. Collection of some of the best Radiohead pieces on Rock's Back pages, including something I reread before this a great interview with Johnny by Rob Young of The Wire, but in Uncut magazine from 2011. It's a really, really good piece actually about his soundtrack work, yeah. about working with Paul Thomas Anderson. And the title is what do I do? I just generally worry about things. <laughs> so that—that's his real role. Please forget guitarist, de facto arranger. He's the chief warrior uh, for for Radiohead. But I do think—I mean, I am a Radiohead fan, and I think he brings extraordinary things to mm-hmm. what they've done over the years.
3: And I'm a Paul Thomas Anderson fan, and I think he's brought extraordinary things to those films. So we're all happy. Films. We're so, all happy. You know, we're all reasonably happy. Reasonably happy. Reasonably happy. <laughs> happy enough.
0: Shall Um, we? Moving, yeah, moving swiftly on to what new articles are going to the library this week. Starting Record Mirror 65 is Norman Joplin interviewing the animals' Chas Chandler. Now, this 65, I guess this has been after the first animals tour of the US? Would that be? Probably. Probably. Almost certainly. And obviously, Chas Chandler's really struck. They They played down south, and a lot of things really struck him about what he was seeing. He says, But the audiences down there are tremendous, although the racial situation is still terrible. For instance, there's no colour ban on coloured fans coming to the concerts. It's just that if they did turn up, they know what would happen to them. Of course, no colour groups go down there, so they don't hear any music at all. And that, of course, isn't true, the jiggling circuit was operating. But then the intolerance is on both sides sometimes. And the difference between white and coloured groups in the States is enormous. This is really interesting. There are two separate entities. Over here... UK. The groups have always studied the blues and they strive for the soul sound. In the States, the white groups don't. They have their own sound and they stick to it. Only the white groups and artists who have grown up in predominantly colored areas know the blues like the Righteous Brothers. That's broadly true, that White English rock and roll groups in the mid-sixties were far more directly influenced by black music than most white American groups. Mm. American groups got it via impersonating English groups, if they got it at all. There are exceptions, Paul Revere and Raiders and so on and so forth. But there's some truth in that. Moving on to 71, again it's that rare beast, a positive John Mendelssohn review. In this case Mendo Moment! (laughs) (laughs) In this case of Alice Cooper live in Los Angeles, and he says. Alice himself, now moving and singing with unprecedented assurance, is finally the completely unsettling psychedelic tart he's always wanted to be. (laughs) Psychedelic (laughs) psychedelic tart. You You like the slice of psychedelic tart. tart. He he really proves of Alice, which surprises me. Phil Symes in Disc 1972 interviewing Roberta Flack, who just at that point had her first big hit. The first time ever I saw your face
1: was that year, wasn't it? I think it was.
0: She says, a lot of people ask me why I do so many songs by white songwriters. Well, I just do the songs that I like, no matter where they come from. Later on, she says she's going to be doing a soundtrack for a film, actually, which was never made at the time. It's a film of a book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, which is, of course, Maya Angelou's book. Now, I first heard of that when Virago published that in... The mid-80s, I think it
1: was. Yes, can't I can't mean, remember your publication, I think but it was certainly t- no later I think that.
0: that was the first time it was published in this country. Right. And my sister worked for the Raga at the time, and I got a copy of it, and it's a marvellous, marvellous book. It's a, one of five Maya Angelou books, and they kind of get less interesting as they go along, but that first one is... Mm. Mm. So she says, this, it's an autobiography by a black woman, and it's very typical of the black people in the early 40s in the South. I was so moved by the book, I agreed to do it. I find it very easy to identify with. The book is so brilliant, it's unbelievable. She's right, it's a, it's, it's a fantastic book, but it would have meant nothing to anyone in England at the time, mm. pretty much, outside right. of a handful of people that had bought it on import or right. something like that. Right, so
2: this
1: is an interesting
0: Very interesting, thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: The first time Ever I saw
0: Next one is Ian MacDonald reviewing Eno and Fripp's "No Pussy Footings near me 1973, and this is just hilarious writing. Retailing is only one pound 49. It unfolds in Rococo arabesques and divaricating asymptotes for speaking a hermetic inspiration given only to those few for whom the head is in radiant and complete harmony with the heart and the hips. <laughs> And it ends with, what more can I say? You can't dance to it. But as a stimulant and accompaniment to copulation, it is without parallel in the annals of recorded music. (laughs) Uh,
1: <laughs> surprisingly, that wasn't a sticker put <laughs> on the album.
0: Oh, also, goodness. I get the feeling that Ian McDonald knows that he's having a laugh here. Probably, you, you know, there's something about that first paragraph oh, I wrote, goodness. which
1: is it's, it's just—it's so over the top. I mean, Ian was the go-to guy, at NME for kind of Eno-esque music, wasn't he? Yes, he wrote more very much. about. Those sorts and of... kraut rock and so on, so exactly, forth. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I remember that album. No, I mean, at one, one always bought those albums because they were, were cheap. Were, were £1. <laughs> and the Faust tapes, yes, of course, was yeah, was yeah. one of them, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, there were a number of. I'm
0: afraid the other one, which we'll pretend we didn't buy. Well, I actually didn't buy. Is pictures of an exhibition by Emerson, Legan, and Palmer. One pound forty nine. That too was one pound forty nine. Things we don't really like to talk about.
1: <laughs> you can't even get a cappuccino for one part. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sonny Rollins interviewed by on the phone by Brian Case in The Enemy in '76. Now, so, Casper and I certainly are both huge Sonny Rollins mm. fans. I'm a huge Brian Case fan as a mm-hmm. writer. I can read him all day. That's a lovely interview. and it? Um, it, just, it, it's, it is great. After a sticky start when yeah. they don't really quite understand what each other's saying. I'm mean, okay. on the phone and so on and so forth. Sonny Rollins is talking about the saxophone. It's such a beautiful-looking instrument. I had a lot of heroes on
1: saxophone. Louis Jordan, Coleman Hawkins. You know. mm. and well, it's, it's nice that he mentions Louis Jordan. Yes. Who wasn't, you know, Charlie Parker, by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> I mean,
3: Sonny never was, was just a Charlie Parker-esque no. player. Right. Right. No, so, I mean, so, t- a...
1: Tell us a bit about Sonny Rollins. Yeah. Put him in context.
3: Yeah, I mean, he... He was a fantastic interpreter of mm. popular tunes in a way that's yes. very interesting. He's a very melodic player with a lovely, I mean, he's one of my favorite tones on yes. the tenor saxophone. Yeah. And he has this great, kind of breathy but precise tone. Mm. And he, when he improvises, he's frequently using melodic fragments from the tune he's playing. He, he basically yes. plays the tune. So yes. I mean, the, I mean he, he talks in this interview about he's getting away from chords because
0: jazz has become very chordal-based, especially in and and, yeah. yeah, and... and modal stuff as well. And for him, it's about the top line. It's yeah. absolutely... And I, my favourite, uh, one of my favourite albums is his album called Where West, where he does this yeah. fabulous version of I'm an Old Cow hand from the Rio oh, Grande. And it's got I a brilliant cover too. of him standing next to a cactus with a ten-gallon hat and his yeah. tenor under his arm. This is it's, it's brilliant. It's, it? it's like, I first got into him when I was about 15, I guess. And I was watching Alfie on TV, the film Alfie, flying about the second, third time, and I knew the film. And I suddenly stopped watching the film and started listening to the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And at the very end, during the the, the closing credit sequence, there's a photograph of Rollins with his... He had a Mohican in those days. In a doorway of a rain-swept nighttime shot of him in this doorway in, I guess, New York. And I looked at it and thought, that's so hip. So I raced up and got the first record I could get which is a record called East Broadway Rundown, which was actually as out there as Rollins ever got. I mean, it's as close to the avant-garde, which, of course, completely freaked me out. It wasn't what I was expecting, at all I was expecting, like Alfie. you, know? you want your
1: money back?
0: Uh, no, I got into it.
2: Right.
0: I just, I just I, for you. I, I, I got yeah, into cool. it. So, and I, now it's still one of my favourite okay. Rollins Rollins records. And I saw him a couple of times live, which was always great. Though he his bands got weaker and weaker as he, as he went on he tends to sort of rather than have really great musicians with him, he'd have fairly cheap musicians who would mm. just basically kind of prop him up. While he And I got a bit bored of his kind of don't-stop-the-carnival sort of stuff, you know. I mean, it just, just it gets a bit tedious. But he's still... Magnificent
3: player. Just, just hearing that sound. And to say that he was a great melodic player is yeah, not yeah. to say that he wasn't inventive no, and no. creative and yeah. brilliant. You know, and even the, the more avant-garde stuff as well. It, he does go he, places. He, he with had what that he does. extraordinary
0: stuff. Like when he decided that, aside from the fact that he, had, like all the players of his generation, had his struggles with drugs in, in the early years, but there was also a point where he thought he had sort of basically run out of gas, and so he effectively retired for three years and would go to. A, was it the upper tier of the, the, the footway of the Brooklyn Bridge and just play all night on the, the footway of the Br- Brooklyn really? Bridge? Never played gigs or anything like that. Wow. It was it, extraordinary. Yeah. Well, so Jasper and I yeah. are big fans, and it's, yeah. it's really nice to read this piece. He is really—he
1: one of the giants. Yeah, he it's says he's to me—it's very Colossus. Yeah. There Colossus.
0: you go. He says to me, it's very difficult for a person to be a musician and be involved in music and also keep the body in perfect shape, and that's in reference to sort of the struggles he, he mm-hmm. has and had. He's still alive, isn't he's he? He's
1: still alive. He lives up in Woodstock. He now. must
0: be in his late eighties.
1: He's very ancient. Yeah, yeah, Vener- venerable and
0: um, ancient. Anyway, wonderful, wonderful and, man, and, and hair's
1: all sorts of. White. Still more yeah, right I know, now,
0: isn't it? Yeah. This next piece, 1978, Dave DiMartino writing for his student paper, The Michigan State News... On Bruce Springsteen, and I think this is a fantastic quote that here, he says, when I hear Prove It All Night, I don't think, wow, what great rock and roll. I think, wow, that reminds me of great rock and roll. And there's the major difference. And right there, he puts his thing on what I, on my reservations about not just Bruce Springsteen, but the, the people like Bruce Springsteen, this simulation of an idea of what rock and roll is, rather than something genuine
1: as- it's partly what Tim Riley was writing about yeah. in the, the piece that we discussed earlier. And I think that's probably right. It is rock and roll that's harking back to the original sounds, yes. isn't it? I still think that Prove It All Night is a pretty great song. Mm-hmm. And I can listen quite happily to Darkness on the Edge of Town. I think it's it's a great punchy album. But, you know, is it... Doing anything very yeah, new? Or I mean, is it, in a way,
0: that quote I just read... Mess of rock and roll. Absolutely, Yes, mm-hmm. mess of rock and roll. It absolutely points That's to a my Revivalist resume. as well. I
1: know. Well, you know,
0: you know, it's this idea that there's some... First of all, some magical past where rock and roll was just great and we've somehow lost it in the 70s. Yeah. And we need to find it again. We need yeah. to re- return to some sort of... And as you say, it relates very much to Tim Riley talking about exactly the same thing, but let's say five years later or, or more when in fact let's say in this country you've got people like the pop group and all that really examining finding new ways of of making music that springsteen was in a sense the first of that the past is the good stuff today is terrible we have to go back to the past to to, to find out what's good and truthful and real about Yeah I
1: is. think I think subsequently he has done more than that mm-hmm. and I think he has written some great songs it's worth Remembering that he was in a way he was almost like a harbinger of punk because Springsteen and the e Street Band were a reaction to the bloatedness of mid seventies yeah. rock yeah. in the same way that Pub Rock was here. Mm. He was like a kind of more anthemic yeah, yeah. iteration of that mm-hmm. punk rock. He was this he was this kid in jeans from mm-hmm. Asbury Park, no frills, mm-hmm. you know. And I think he did do rock and roll a service in that sense. He shook he shook it up.
0: Yes, I I, I think That's fine, and, you know, I have no complaint with him doing it. I suppose my complaint is the way
3: his fans perceived him. I think there's an interesting debate to be had about sort of intersections between nostalgia, authenticity and how we view people being authentic in music, Mm -hmm. right? Like, where often people assume that in order to be authentic you have to be no frills, jeans-wearing, whatever, just, like, you know, doing it in a kind of... Naive, not in a judgment way, but just in a naive sort of. This is what I well, every man, kind of, the right,
1: American yeah, every, right, bruises yeah, yeah. the heartland. But even everyman. even
3: now, when people are going back to like recording music on tape, like garage yeah, yeah. band style stuff, it, it is you know, it's it's sort of trying to rather than needing to actually be authentic, yeah. it's like using a tool to try and uh, approximate. Absolutely, using the appearance of authenticity. I mean,
0: I would which isn't to so say you can't be no, authentic no. when you do that, but. No. I mean, I always find let's say if you're talking about sort of 78, 79, 80, I always found the human league more authentic than Bruce Springsteen. And they were using one fingers on synthesizers. Mm. I don't think authenticity lies in these building blocks.
1: No. But you could just argue that the human league made more sense in terms of the UK's pop culture and Springsteen made more sense in terms of American.
0: Well, you know, I'd say the same about Divo and the Cars mm. as authentic as,
1: mm. as Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, but then Springsteen sold millions of records and they didn't. That's because a di- that's, that's he, a he did di- appeal to the sort of inner blue-collar every everyman. Isn't there something? In inauthentic about tank. selling
3: millions of records?
1: <laughs> no, I'm just saying there was the appeal was there sure, because no, he represented get, something that wasn't. Um, let's say, you know, you know I, 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 Emerson, Lake I, I, and Palmer.
0: No, 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 no Barney, I absolutely get that. What I'm saying is that actually there isn't anything inherently authentic about trying to be authentic. Yeah, that's a really neat way that's of encapsulating That's a beautiful that.
1: Zen statement. OK, moving swiftly on. <laughs>
0: Ronald Shannon Jackson being interviewed by Mark and the Wire 1988. Ronald Shannon Jackson is something of a hero of mine. He's passed that whole generation of kind of out there jazz meets funk meets rock people from mm. New York, from the loft scene, James Blood Ulmer, and so on and so forth. But he'd been around a lot longer and had a really kind of fairly substantial career. I've seen him quite a few times live in different aggregations. Okay. Fabulous drummer. Mm. And he talks about when he's. First started working Cecil Taylor. He's, he's, he said, can you play? And I said, I'm the best at what I play because no-one else plays the way I play, which is absolutely true. He says the drums are not a background while someone's sipping a martini and trying to get some pussy. Second um, use of the P word in this well, podcast. I'm afraid so. And the last thing is, he says, if people want to strike a balance, they should listen to Kenny G. Most of them do. That's good. It's simple. But life ain't always going to be simple. And what he's saying is that he works in the areas where it's difficult, you know. And, of course, there's a world of simple, easy, nice music for people to relax to and sit martinis.
2: Poor know.
1: Kenny G. He always... He was, he was the, the, <laughs> the scapegoat yeah, for but, I mean, everyone, he wasn't shit, he? Though? He's shit. He's
2: totally Kenny G. I'm no,
1: sure he is, but it's uh, always Kenny no, G. I feel sorry no, for him. No, I don't feel sorry for him. Anyone no. who calls themselves Kenny G is no, asking for he, he's he's trouble. He's made millions he's from made millions.
3: it. And there's nothing
1: to feel sorry for You're right. I don't feel sorry for Kenny you know, fine. Fair you, enough, Kenny but, G. But, but, you know... Music's not,
0: um Oh, absolutely I mean, the last thing, this is just a great interview. Um, Jermiroquai's Jir- 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 JK, interviewed by Lisa Verica and Vox in 94. 94 was when they were just getting really, really, really big. And he's so prickly. He says, a lot of people reckon I want to be black, and I'm trying to sound like a black singer, which is a load of old cobblers. And he says, so my songs are derivative of black music, are they? Get it through your skull, buddy boy. So, are the <laughs> so were the Beatles. with the. So were the fucking Rolling Stones, you know. I mean, this guy... And this is a guy who's a naked Stevie Wonder copier.
2: Yeah, we were listening
1: to that... We were listening to that... We were listening to that Stevie, weren't we, the other day?
0: <laughs> Jesus. I mean, this, this interview is just cripplingly funny.
1: He is so trippy, it's not true.
0: Oh, God. I mean, was he... Was JK, a.k.a. the Pratt in the
1: Hat? The Pratt in the Hat. Yeah, <laughs> he was really annoying. and he And he collected... Cars, didn't yeah. he? And he went out with a with a, a, well, a, a with page her, three. And girl. he went out with and Denise just, Van
0: Ousen It was very
1: Essex. Went very, Denise Van
0: and, and, and what was interesting is I read one interview with him where she's there and she's just really getting pissed off at him because he's, oh, he's, really? he spends his whole time in a cloud of weed smoke. He just oh, okay. he smokes skunk round the clock. You she know? wasn't. Like and she that. really no. just, just, just She's nice. She's a bright yeah. woman. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, Jamiroquai and Simply Red were sort of similar. Outfits, white sole, to all intents and purposes. And for all Simply faults, for all Mick Hutnell's faults, Mick Hucknell never pretends to be anything but... Red-haired. Red-haired. <laughs> millicently red-haired. A sort of uh, wanting to be a, a wannabe black soul singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, his very first pr- proper hit was his cover version of Money to Tight, Mentioned, of mm-hmm. Valentine Brothers. Uh,
1: I think we're going to have a Mick Hutnell audio interview quite soon, oh, by know. the well, way. That could be quite so interesting. So keep your powder dry He... he, he
0: I mean, Mick, Mick for all... Of, I mean, look, we all think he's a bit of a prat, you know but he's a very honest Pratt and mm. th- th- he's done some really good things he he financed blood and fire the great Absolutely. reggae reissue label yeah yeah i um, mean he-, he really did and that what a great label it was. Yeah. The best remastering I've ever heard of that sort of stuff. Right. They, where they and really, the packaging is, was sublime, superb.
1: wasn't it? Absolutely superb. Let's pay homage to Huttall fairly soon. Yeah. There's a new Simply Red album. so we, we will talk, And I agree with you, Mark, that, I, that there's something... While I can't say I'm a massive Simply Red fan at all, I do think he... Actually, there are, there are some good songs and, in there. And his
0: heart's in the right place. Yeah. he's
1: not a merely imitative... Yeah. Well, um, Jamiroquai... As J.K. essentially. It, J.K. denying his imitative. Yes, it's
0: exactly. I saw them once playing. They played Notting Hill Carnival. They played mm. one of the big spaces mm. just up off lab, top end of Labor Grove, and I just kind of sat there with my kind of head in my hands, going, yeah. "Jesus Christ!" I mean, I, you know, I was an R and B musician. I, yeah. I was a sort of solemn person. Yeah, so in
1: it, in, in, it wasn't like just on principle no. you objected. There's, uh, there's something annoying it, about it. It's I mean, not. he's not devoid of talent. he's just really irritating. Yeah,
3: <laughs> and that's <laughs> the end of that story. We're living in, let me tell you. So, what have you guys got to talk about? Well, us. <laughs> what? Who? Well, <laughs> I've got an interesting piece from 2000 that's from a special issue of The Wire where they were looking at the internet... Ooh. The World Wide Web. I love, that the, I love reading yes. early things on yeah, the internet. It's, it's really fascinating. Mm. But So this is an interview with a guy called John Whitney who controls a website called Brainwash.com, which still exists, as far as I'm aware, and is sort of a, a central hub for music's outsider tendency, mm-hmm. hosting sites for bands like World Serpent, Tortoise Kids 606, and that sort of tortoise. real house. You're a tortoise, um, but wow. he makes a very interesting point. I mean, a lot of the article is sort of full of the World Wide Web with capital Ws and mm-hmm. the web, you know, all that stuff. But John Whitney sort of quite presciently says, in the end, it will be what brings people back that wins. The downfall of many of the flashy, loud, screaming, mammo jamo, caffeinated, mocha-blast websites is that they're harder to maintain to keep the attention of the fickle people you're attracting to begin with. If you keep things relatively easy to maintain and navigate, people who are interested will come back. And really? I, I rocks just, back pages. There really? we go. Thank you. You <laughs> made my point for me. That was, that, was, that was, I thought that was a kind it's of... It's funny, the thing. reason
1: it's from some kind of manual that had just been published. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How um, to start a music uh, website? I, mean,
3: I, I
0: designed, the first website I designed was about 94, wow. something like
1: that. You are the granddaddy uh, of the uh,
0: internet. Uh, uh, and... In those days, it was, you were doing it all by hand in HTML in a, yeah. a plain document. You limited 256 colours, which sounds like a lot, but it really isn't. JPEGs were only just coming in. Basically, GIFs were the only way you could yeah. put images on. It was an incredibly clumsy process. Most websites, when I first started, had great backgrounds and centred text, all times New Roman, and were just mm-hmm. ghastly. And so for about... Five years I was kind of right in that process of how do you do websites? So yeah. how, how do you make them navigable? How do you make it simple? And you're dealing with clients who see someone's done something in Flash and you say you don't yeah, use you... that don't use Flash you know and, oh, uh, 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 and, and you just get you get all this sort of negotiation you know, keep by, it simple
3: by the time this, this article was written in 2000 yeah. that was when the real proliferation of like Flash based websites right. with flashing lights and yeah, 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 yeah. you know animations oh, that, that just A didn't load on, yeah, on yeah. dial-up and B were horrendous yeah, well, to look at you but can but still find is, examples if, of this in the if, back alleys if, of
0: site, these, if your site if your site was aimed at a professional market. I was designing sites mm-hmm. for photographers. That was my large chunk of what I was doing around 2000. And they all said, I really want this in Flash because I wanted to have like, a slideshow. And in those days, the only way you could do a slideshow was Flash. And I'd say, I could do it. Well, I couldn't do it. I'd get someone to do yeah. it. But you do realise most of your clients won't be able to see it because Flash is an application. And if you work in an office... IT are the only people who can install flash on your machine. And the chances of getting an IT department who are buried under failing email and so on and so yeah. cool, to come around and install flash on your machine, even if they w- were willing to do it. Which they probably wouldn't be, they they probably would be would riddled be. with security holes. Absolutely. It, you know, yeah, you could have a site which has got a flash size to it, but none of the people you want to see it will be able to see it. Yeah. There
3: you go. Moving on to 2002... Sorry about that, a quick diversion. He's
0: <laughs> got
1: early web technologies. I think it's fascinating. fascinating to go back to those days. <laughs>
3: 2002, an interview in The Guardian by Adam Sweeting. He yeah. talks to Eric Mingus, son of ah. Charles... And it's a really fascinating interview, actually, because I think Eric you know, is a musician in his own right but Mm. has really struggled to come out from underneath Charles. I bet. You you would. Yeah, yeah. But it has some really interesting quotes, also from Sue Mingus, Charles' widow. Mm -hmm. Charles always knew he was first and foremost a composer, she said recently. The world considered him a virtuoso bass player, a personality on stage and a great band leader, and they overlooked his composition. People Mm -hmm. did not play his music in the way they played Duke Ellington and Thelonious Monk, and I think it was because he had such a forceful personality. They didn't want to trespass on Mingus' territory. Right. I think that's a, that's a really interesting yeah. idea, that, yeah. that maybe his strength of personality kind of
0: swallowed things, swallowed
3: up. things up in a way.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I mean it's great. I with Ellington because, of course, Mingus briefly played in Ellington's band. There's this yeah. great, great, great oh. story <laughs> where Juan Tizol had yeah. been in the band for a long time yeah. and Mingus really did not hit it off. At one point, Juan Tizol went off stage and came back with an axe and chased Mingus off the stage with an axe. And, and Ellington had sacked Mingus. And Mingus said it was the most elegant sacking he ever had. He said, he sat down and said Charles, Juan is an old problem. You're an entirely new one,
3: and I'm going to have to let you go. <laughs> it was just fabulous. Oh, and also, speak, yeah, Eric also said in this interview, sort of speaking to what you were saying, Ronald Shannon Jackson. I was brought up in the alternative America where it was our job to question our government and our media. Mm-hmm. But it seems like a lot of people don't remember that way of thinking. I was born into that in the 60s. My dad and a few others started putting political content in their music, which was unheard of because jazz was just entertainment music for a long time. Yeah, yeah. But in the States, at least, what jazz has become is Kenny G. And there's nothing challenging about it musically. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's it's, it's very funny. turning into the Kenny yeah. G podcast. Well,
3: I mean, that, that, that is really interesting. I mean, of course, I remember a lot of Mingus' titles were explicitly yeah. political. That said, I do think that slightly mistaken to think of early jazz as just entertainment music because entertainment at that time was in itself a political act for black people to get to entertain themselves i I think that was that was a political thing to do so I i think it's sort of slightly too simplistic to say that oh you know jazz only became political in the 60s when people started agitating where it was the very act of having your own form of music i mean bearing in mind where jazz came from from slave songs that was a rebellious act so I think I, I think there is that. I hear what you're it, saying, but I I, yeah, I, I, mean, I I I wouldn't.
0: I don't really agree. I mean, I think that you could say that black people doing anything independently was a rebellious act, but the fact is they had been since even before the end of slavery in sure. different parts. Yeah, of yeah the that's, what, that's what I mean. Um, but being explicitly political was a new thing. Yeah, um, and, we, and very much was. Uh, a result of the growth of the civil rights movement in the mid-50s, early mid-50s. And so to be explicitly political was a pretty no, serious I, I'd thing say, that's do. certainly
3: true. I just think there is more nuance to that okay. discussion okay. That, that can be had. But anyway, that's sort of my cool. pair of choices. Um,
1: I've not much to add. In passing, I will allude to two pieces that I proofread. For this week, one is with Jennifer Lopez in Baku. I I think the writer John Lewis will forgive me if I describe this as a pure puff piece. It's written for a Condé Nast magazine called Baku, which I assume it's essentially all about sort of promoting Azerbaijan. Essentially, Condé Nast taking the Azerbaijan shilling and. The context is that JLo has flown to Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan, to do literally like a five-minute performance at halftime in the Women's World Cup that's being staged there. And Magazine. I mean, no doubt, being paid sort of two million dollars for it or something. And her kids are there, and yada yada. And it's just sort of hilarious because she clearly has been told that part of the deal is she has to talk about, you know, encouraging young women to do sport, and isn't it great that women? It just it just reads it's so sort of hollow and absurd. I interviewed her once before she became a huge pop star. Did you? Yeah, yeah. I was you, looking for the audio. Can't I can't have, I can't find it. Can't when she was Clark. she was just Jennifer Lopez at, at, at that point. She was breaking through in that film about Selena, the sort of tax max type singer. She's oh, yes. a big Latina star. Yeah. And yeah, she was clearly going places. Mm-hmm. But this piece isn't her finest hour. Um sorry John. <laughs> um I hope you were paid as well as almost as well as she was. <laughs> uh, and then the other thing I just want to touch on because I'm sure I'll just get abuse. For it <laughs> is uh, an interview with the great Eric Carman, former leader of the Raspberries, who I just adore, one of my favourite <laughs> bands, and, and Bob Ruggiero of Houston Press, or the Houston Chronicle, he has been contributing to us for a while. It's just a Q&A with Eric. He's doing a date in Houston. And, of course, he talks about what, Power pop means, and I love those Raspberries records, and I even really love All By Myself, his most probably infamous... Yes, quite. ...soppy ballad. Yes, but there we go, Eric Carmen, And there's lots more, over 50 new pieces in the library for subscribers. Have a look. Have a look at the free stuff on NXS by Tim Riley. Just um, don't listen to their music. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <But> you like <laughs> one of them. Tracks, Jasper. Which one do you, you know. actually? If you have to listen to, I mean, to make, to I, ha, there, I don't know what it's called, but there's that one. The big need one. you tonight. Okay, well, that, yeah. Jasper, you know. when when that comes on the I have to tell you, Jasper starts waving his arms around. So it works. Ironically, but no, I just I dispute that. Mark, how are we going out? Oh, yes, we're going to go out with
0: another clip from Johnny Greenwood, or in this case, should it be Bluewood? Where oh, he, I saw
1: what he did get
0: that. it. Where he talks about his colour blindness, and he essentially sees the world in different tones of blue. Can't so, see
1: red and green. Can't see red and green. I mean...
0: I know. It's yeah. to listen to it in the clip, but he talks about traffic lights at night being very, very tricky things to do. I listen to that!
1: And I thought, mate, I don't think you should be driving <laughs> at all. <laughs> period. If you can't tell the difference between a sodium light and a red light as a stop sign, I'd, you are, you are, you're a, in trouble. A, even more of a hazard on the roads than our <laughs> colleague Paul Kelly. <laughs>
0: So that's it, I think. We'll listen to this clip and we'll see you all next week.
1: We will, when we are celebrating.
0: 50th episode next week. I was going to say
1: 50 years of Rock's Back Pages. (laughs) Actually, it's the 50th episode of the podcast. Which is
0: really something. I mean, um, it sounds like an awful lot, because it
1: is an awful lot. That's
0: bollocking on.
1: We may be even sillier next week than we've been this week, but I hope you indulge us. See you then. Thanks for listening. (laughs)
0: Bye-bye.
2: Colors I can see. I'm very colorblind. Oh really? Yeah, I can see blue. So everything. When everyone asks what color something should be, kind of, I can't see red or green or orange or pink or.
0: So it has to be
2: blue again. So everything's kind of blue in my life. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh. yeah. So presumably you want to see that Derek Jarman film in I should <laughs> do. Yeah. <You laughs> really should. God. So what? I'm fascinated by that. What? What? Uh, What's it like? Say, I mean, presumably you can tell traffic lights. I only run mean, quite close to them. That's, oh, really? that's kind of a worry. Yeah, driving in cities late at night. Oh god! They kind of they look, the red looks exactly the same colour as the street lights, which are orange mm-hmm. are they or are different you know, kind of like, mm-hmm. I'm not even sure. The street so, lights, yeah, some sodium yellowy orange. Right. Okay, so that's all one colour to me. Oh god! So I just kind of go slow.
3: That was Johnny Greenwood in conversation with Andy Gill in 2003, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murris and Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.